build your cultural competence. Listen to interesting stories. Learn about the cultural fails and how to avoid them. Get the global perspective here at Culture Matters on International Business. Your host, Chris Smith, has a plan. A plan for people who are looking for a solution. He makes you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences. Every episode, he interviews a prominent guest who will tell you his or her story and share international experiences, making you more cultural competent. And now, here's your host, Chris Smith. Good morning. Welcome to the Culture Matters podcast. Could be good afternoon. Could be good evening, of course, as well. Thanks for listening to this Culture Matters podcast where we have Dr. Joe Cobbs. And Joe Cobbs is Associate Professor of Sports Business at Northern Kentucky University and co-founder of NoRivalry.com. That starts with a K. Research, teaching and industry engagement in the Department of Marketing, Sports Business and Construction Management. His specialities include team rivalry, international sponsorship, and the business of Formula One racing. We talk about all this stuff in this 87th podcast. We talk about more as well. Of course, hard to avoid talking to an American who's in sports business, typically in the, in the education of that. Uh, hard to avoid subject is soccer, or we would say football, or what is this actually? Where does his name soccer come from? He explains it all. So let's get right to the interview. It's time for this week's guest at Culture Matters. Good morning, Joe. How are you? I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing well as well. Joe Cops on the uh, on the other side. Welcome. Thanks for having um, for coming here for um, uh, taking the time out of your no doubt busy schedule. And um, uh, we came across. I came across you when you were on the uh, Tell Me Something I Don't Know show. The spin-off of Freakonomics, excellent podcast, two excellent podcasts, actually, where you yes. talked something about rivalry and the international uh, aspects of sports and stuff. And if it's international, you could, you should be on my show. So I was listening <laughs> to you and I thought, okay, I need to get this guy on this uh, on my podcast as well. And um, I'm very happy that you're here. But thanks for I, having me. Uh, more than welcome. Uh, I'm very happy that you're here. It's it's. I know a little bit about you, but nobody else knows about you, and that is about to change, because I'm going to ask you, tell us a little bit about yourself, um, where do you come from, where are you now, and what is your cultural frame of reference, if that sure. makes any sense. Sure. So I was born uh, just south of Canton, Ohio, which is a small, um, a relatively small town uh, in the U.S., in Ohio. Mm-hmm. Um, it's famous for the Professional Football Hall of Fame, so that's yeah. kind of our claim to fame. Um if you will, and um, but it's a. I was born south of there in a, in a pretty rural area um, in the Rust Belt uh, of the U.S. Basically, uh-huh. as it's called, yeah. referred to often, um, and so uh, that's sort of my. And that's where I grew up. So that was sort of my frame of reference. Uh, and then I left to go to college, uh, southern part of the state, Cincinnati. Uh, I went to Miami University uh, okay. in Ohio, uh-huh. um, not the one in Florida. Okay, that's um, you say that. <laughs> Can be confusing yes. if you're not too familiar with uh, with uh, that area, uh-huh. um, and then um, and then I worked in Detroit for a little while uh, for a sports agency, and uh, went back and worked in college athletics for quite a few years uh, at Ohio State and back in my alma mater at Miami as well, and um, and then I decided that um, I was going to I wanted to go the route of a professor 
academia um, and went to University of Massachusetts for my PhD uh, and lived on the East Coast there uh, the four years uh, while I was studying there mm -hmm. and then got the good fortune to be able to come back to uh, what is sort of my home area in the Midwest mm -hmm. um, and we live in Cincinnati now and I'm a professor at Northern Kentucky University which wow. might seem a bit confusing because Cincinnati's in Ohio but Northern Kentucky is obviously in Kentucky uh, but if you're not familiar with Cincinnati, it sits right on the border of Cincinnati and Kentucky. Um, and so the university itself is in Metro Cincinnati, but on the on the Kentucky side of the river. Okay. Uh, so as far as cultural uh, framework, I'd say um, even though I live in a relatively urban area now and, and um, have kind of adopted that, um, I, I enjoy that and what goes along with that. But I grew up in very much a rural um more of a uh, blue-collar manufacturing, farming um, type area uh -huh. uh, with not too much cultural diversity, I would say. Um, but um, but since then, I've been fortunate to travel quite a bit uh -huh. and live in different places in the U.S. and travel quite a bit internationally. And, um, and now I enjoy uh, the culture that you get in an urban area for sure. Okay. All right. Good. Good. Actually, before we're hitting record, you told me that you've been in my hometown as well. Yes. well not the hometown, but the town that I'm living in, in this tiny little village, the tiny 100,000 people of um, uh, of Leuven, which is close to Brussels. Um, that was interesting. And I was there. Maybe I saw you, but maybe, I don't know. I didn't recognize you at that time, for sure. <laughs> um, Joe, would you call yourself more an academic at this stage or more of a sportsman, if you are considering yourself a sportsman at all, of course? Um, I would say that I was probably a bigger sports fan before it became my job to study it. Um, uh, I think that once you become a researcher, an academic, and you start to teach something um, and, and do a lot of research in it. Uh, of course, I was working in sports already before I decided to go the academic route, so I was already kind of on the, uh, I don't know, for lack of a better term, the inside of the business. Yeah. Um, but when it, once it becomes your job, I think uh, a lot of times you sort of remove yourself from being a fan somewhat, you know, not not completely, um, but you're but you're behind the curtain. And so you see some of the stuff that is maybe not quite as glamorous. And although it's fun and, and it's yeah. it's a good job and I would certainly not change my career one bit, um, I would say that probably I'm a little bit more of an academic now than than a huge sports fan okay. um, although I do watch sports quite a bit and my wife might argue with you <laughs> on that assessment <laughs> so what sport do you watch out of curiosity uh, actually I did a lot of my dissertation work in Formula One racing so a very international sport yes. and a lot of my published papers are in Formula One um, that and rivalry are kind of my two areas yes. um, that I do a lot of research in so uh, I watch Formula One uh, college football um, are probably the two that I watch the most and I'm starting to watch a little bit of soccer like most Americans okay. we have actually a huge uh, story happening in in my town here Cincinnati okay. uh, where we have a second division soccer club um, that is drawing over 20,000 fans a game mm -hmm. and uh, which is more than some of our first division clubs here our first division is Major League Soccer MLS uh -huh. in the US and uh, so there's quite a bit of rumbling about MLS moving since we don't have promotion and relegation uh, in our soccer system here um, and so there's quite a bit of talk about um, 
Cincinnati being moved up uh, or being accepted as an expansion franchise in the upper division because cool. they're so successfully so successful from a business standpoint yeah. um, in the second division. It's a it's a nice segue that you bring this up and 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 the thing we need to clear up, Joe, once and for all. What you call football is not football. <laughs> no. it's, I don't. What is what is wrong with with playing a game you call football and you use your hands all the time? That is not well, allowed in football. That's true. What is this? What, did, we actually is there any reason that. where this come from? Where this came from? Yes, I talk about that in one of my classes. So, ahead, um, if you want to enlighten us on this topic as well, well, there's some debate, but I'll give you the short version. Uh-huh. Um, so, of course soccer or association football um as we call soccer here in the u.s um but you call football in europe yeah. uh, and most of the rest of the world um and rugby and our american football and canadian football are all and australian rules football um all different codes of football right yeah. uh and so the word soccer actually comes from association um meaning that the association ver code uh, of football, um, our football here in the U.S. actually derived from the rivalry between Harvard and Yale. Okay. Uh, they were playing a version of soccer a long, long time ago, uh, kind of like a hazing version, I guess, where they put all the young kids or all the underclassmen on one team and they just sort of beat them up under the guise of uh-huh. <laughs> association football. Uh, and so. Harvard banned it uh, on their campus, okay. uh, so they weren't allowed to play it, and uh, so they started to play rugby instead, mm-hmm. and to make a long story short, um, Yale wanted to continue to play Harvard, and, and but Yale was playing association football, so they kind of came up with these hybrid rules uh, that was a combination of a little bit of association football and a little bit of rugby, uh, and that eventually derived into what we now have as American football. Right. So. So when, when you say association football, that means soccer. That is the European rest of the world football. And when you say Correct. when you say American football, that's with all the protection stuff, etc., and the uh, the odd shaped ball. Yes, yes. So my hometown has the Hall of Fame for American football. Okay, right. Okay, and and on the topic of of soccer, and, and um, it was a question that I had in mind, wanting to ask you as well, is. It, it's starting to pick up, but ever so slow. This soccer, the the, um, the European, the the association football, the soccer that you say. Why is it so? How how can how can the rest of the world be so wrong and the U.S. be so right in not adapting or adopting football? You know, you know what I'm trying. What my question is: Why does it take so long for soccer to become a really really popular sport? Yes. Uh, well, I think that. Part of the reason is that we have a very crowded sporting space here in the U.S. in terms of professional leagues. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, uh, you know, we had our version of football. Um, We have baseball, uh, which became was the national pastime, although now if you look at TV ratings or, or, you know, average game attendance, football uh, is much higher than baseball. Basketball and hockey are kind of considered the NHL, uh, which, of course, has Canadian teams as well. Um, Those are sort of our four major leagues. But then we also have NASCAR, um, which is sort of our what a lot of Americans would say is the top version of motorsports. Although those of us that are more culturally aware or (laughs) geographically aware would argue, me certainly being one, that uh, Formula One is obviously the the highest form of motorsports. Um, And so... 
there's a, there was just a lot of barriers, I think, to soccer in terms of um, taking hold and breaking into the space uh, here. I think that if you think about those four major sports that I mentioned, and even NASCAR, um, they all sort of derived in the U.S. or you know, hockey being obviously from Canada, but. Um, four of the original six teams in the NHL were in the U.S. Yeah. Um, and in the U.S., we, you know, are, like it or not, very independent as a national value. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that we were uh, very uh, reluctant early on uh, about the time of the Industrial Revolution when you started to have professional leagues starting to form because people had leisure time and stuff. Uh, we were still very reluctant to adopt anything from any other country um, sporting wise and we instead wanted to sort of build our own sports yes so it's a it's a it's a bit of, of a uh, crowded um, real estate area in terms of sports professional sports and it's also a part of the not invented here syndrome yes yeah. yes yeah. correct and do you think it's it'll progress I mean it'll grow because there's there's a market there's commerce and if there's commerce then it will grow in the US mm -hmm. anything that grows on commerce um, is it that's a hard question to ask. Is it is it ever going to overtake one of the four other major uh, sports that you mentioned? I think so. I mean, I think that soccer's growth uh, here has been incredible in the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. So our major, uh, like our top league MLS has been around for about 20 years now, um, just over 20 years. Um, and it struggled at the beginning. Even a couple teams folded. Um, but in the last 10 years, it's really grown. I think they're up to 22 teams now, and they've already announced that they're going to go to 28 in the next um, in the next uh, four years. Uh -huh. uh, and eventually, I think they'll go to 30 or 32, like our other leagues. Um, and I think, but it's not only that; it's this the growth of streaming and. Um, the internet uh, availability, right? So we can now stream a lot of EPL games. We can stream uh, the bigger uh, Bundesliga games from Germany. We can stream, you know, some La Liga games uh, here in the U.S. And so um, I find in my classes and in some of the um, uh, respondents that we talk to from a research standpoint that. Uh, they might not be into our MLS at all, but they're huge Real Madrid fans, you know, right. or they're huge fans of, you know, um, pick your team, um, Dortmund, you know, Borussia yeah. Dortmund. Yeah, um, I've, heard, I've heard that as well. So some Latinos as well that, that support uh, Madrid and, and not Barcelona, and they watch the, mm -hmm. the Spanish league as well, the in, in Spain only. And only last week I was in Mexico and I was, there was a, uh, the national team of Mexico was playing Russia. And mm -hmm. they beat, was it Russia? I think it was Russia. They beat the Russians um, two to one, um, if it was Russia. I'm starting to doubt now. Anyways, and that's, that these, I mean, the Mexicans are, are, are soccer, football crazy. And you seem to be quite cold still, but slowly, slowly easing and warming, um, and warming towards the subject, I think, which is nice. Yeah. Oh, I think it's, and, and getting back to your question, I think it will overtake the other ones. I think what's changed now yeah. is, so when I was growing up, there was, like, my high school did not have a soccer team. I only knew one person that played soccer, oh. right? Um, but that's not the case anymore, right? And so it took a while for it to grow from a participation standpoint. But then those those people in that generation, um, maybe the, the millennials, um, 
played soccer a lot more and now those millennials are getting to where they have some discretionary income right they're getting to the age where they're getting close to starting to have kids themselves right and so those are the people that can can support a league right they can buy the merchandise they can buy season tickets they will watch the games on tv and that's really what you need to support the growth of a sport is that kind of of uh backing yeah yeah, but just like you said, it's been going it's been going strong for the last ten years, indeed. Um, it's, I've been um, thinking. I wrote down a question like, "How international is sports?" Which, in and by itself, is a silly question because sports is international. But how is take soccer, take um, uh, take the Olympics in a broader sense, in, in with all the different disciplines? How is how is sport in your in your professional opinion um, and dealing with international sports as well? How is sports being looked at in different cultures? Can you can you give some mm-hmm. shed some light on that, please? Sure. I think that um, one of the things that I talk about um, or I try to convey to to a lot of my undergrads is sports takes on different meanings in different areas in of the world, different regions. And specifically, what I mean by that is here in the U.S. Um, and most, not all my students, but most of them, you know, grew up here in the U.S. or in the, mostly even in the Midwest. Um, you know, our teams do not have political affiliations or religious affiliations or, you know, we don't have a team that represents the immigrants and another team represents, you know, the original settlers. Um, and so that is completely foreign to their understanding of sports, right? So when we talk about something like El Clasico and you've got, you know, Barcelona that's representing, you know, a whole region of Spain that's been trying to secede or become more independent for such a long time. And then you have Real Madrid that represents sort of Franco Spain and nationalism Spain. You know, that's, they don't understand that connection to the sport itself, right? Um, Because we don't have that uh, here in the US. Mm Um, And so from that standpoint, I think that the meaning that sport has uh, and specifically the clubs and what they mean to people as part of their identity Mm -hmm. is much different uh, just comparing the U.S. to, say, Europe. um, But that would expand even into South America because the same thing happens in South America and uh, basically the rest of the world, you know, where you get a lot of other ties to personal identity that are tied into sports versus here in the U.S. we don't. We don't have that as much. Um, okay. And and in a typical, not a discipline, a, the games, the the Olympic games, they they always try. The media always tries to say, no, this is has nothing to do with politics. Nothing to do with politics. That can't be true. I mean, I think <laughs> the Olympics is, is is pure politics and and a bit of sport. Yeah. I'm, I'm exaggerating here, I guess. But what do you think about that? Well, I mean, that's a good point because all you have to do is point to the boycotts, right? Like uh, the Soviet Union boycotting the U.S. Olympics and then the U.S. returning the favor and boycotting the Soviet Olympics. I mean, that's clearly all politics, right? Um, And so, uh, and I think that the Cold War uh, is a great illustration of the fact that you've got you know, you have these two superpowers that are thankfully not battling it out on some, you know, battlefield. Yeah, um, war. But instead, yeah, so instead they are, they're looking for other other uh, instances where they can compete each, against each other head to head. And sports provides that perfect uh, scenario, right? Where there is a winner and a loser. We call it a zero sum exactly. competition, right? Meaning somebody wins and somebody loses. Um, they're not both winners. Uh, and so, 
that's where I think the politics comes in. And so although when you step back from it and you think about it as, well, can the U.S. really say our hockey team is better than the Soviets, therefore our economic and social system is better, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that seems like a little bit of a stretch, I think, when you step back from it. Um, But yet that's what the media and that's what, you know, even the governments like to try and um, convey in propaganda or in other promotion uh, of sports. And of course, it also, the Olympics, I don't think is opposed to that because it gets people more invested in the games, right? Yes. Um, and that's what they're looking for is people that will get passionate about the games. So um, that's another reason, getting back to what we were talking about before, that I think you see the fever around soccer in particular in the rest of the world is just so heightened because the teams mean more than just the club. You know, it means your local area. It might mean your political party. It might mean your religious affiliation, right? It means more to you. Whereas here in the U.S., not that we don't have passionate fans. We do have Mm -hmm. really passionate fans across our sports. But, you know, I would say it's not quite at the same level of identification because you don't have all these identities attached Teams. Yes, we don't have we you we in Europe and I guess in the rest of the world and South America as well, uh, they have much more emotion attached to these kind of things. Yeah, if you're from this area, you're not from that area, and that's I mean mm-hmm. this is and we've got this this typically um, if anybody plays against Germany, the the joke goes with a soccer game. The there are two rules in a soccer game: the, the game lasts 90 minutes, and then Germany wins. That's that's sort of the the, the concept that some people have. So it's always it's. Uh-huh. It is to some extent to some people here in Europe, and I know this from a fact from from my friends as well. When the the Dutch play against Germany, it is like a reliving of World War II. Can we beat them right. now? And that's that's a yeah. very strong thing. Although that's been seventy years ago, that was not even my generation. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm fifty four years old here, so and it goes back a long, long time. That emotion lingers on for many, many years, indeed. When it gets passed down through the generations, right? So, yeah, like, yeah. like you, you know, you feel that passion from from your parents or from your grandparents who were, you know, part of World War Two. True. Um, yeah, that's true. My mom tells me the stories, not so much about about against the Germans, but more how how she survived the uh, the so called hunger winter, which was 1944, and where she ate cat because all of a sudden there was meat on the table, but there wasn't any meat, and then the cat was gone. And guess what? What what the cat became? The cat became meat. And tulip bulbs and stuff like that. So that that's a story that I that I will I will tell my kids as well, which I probably have mm-hmm. already. So indeed, yeah, that that's carried through generations as well. Um, there's there's another, and, and you mentioned it, and it triggered a question here. I would consider, and most of the people that I talk to and that I do in my get in my workshops as well. If I um, uh, ask, if I show them a list of countries and I ask them to reign to to um, uh, how do you say? Guess what the most competitive country is? It's always the U.S. <laughs> it's all always the United States, United uh-huh. States, United States. And even though um, on a cultural dimension of goal orientation, the Brits are even slightly more competitive, but they don't show it as much. So mm-hmm. why is why are the Americans so competitive in everything, but particularly sports? I think that there's a. Um well, there certainly is. If you listen to you know some of the political campaigns, this feeling across a wide swath of America that there's some sort of American exceptionalism, right? And so we feel like we have to prove that in international competition, right? 
Um, And so specifically in international competition, I think that that is why you get um, that competitiveness. Um, In domestically, I think that it just goes to sort of what I was talking about a little bit previously, both our individualism um, as a cultural dimension, but also our strong um, value of capitalism, right? And uh, the American dream, which goes both ways, right? In terms, I mean, there's a lot of research that shows that the American dream is uh, maybe questionable in terms of other countries have just as much opportunity to advance. Uh-huh. I mean, individuals have just as much opportunity uh, to advance themselves as they do in the U.S. Um, but uh, I think that that idea is part of our national fabric, right? And so while that speaks to if you work hard, you will do really well. Um, there's also the the other the flip side of that where if you don't work hard then you get what you get right like right. you you're not willing to work hard then yes. too bad for you right um, and I think that that's sort of part of our ethos uh, as a country in the U S um, obviously we're we're very diverse um, but it's sort of built into our national fabric and so I think that that competition comes out of that right that it's sort of everybody for themselves uh because we're individualists and also you know that by beating others i can lift myself up or lift my in-group up you know uh whatever i identify with as my in-group and the other the other person or the other team um or the other group has the same possibilities and if they don't then i do Correct. So you see it as kind of a zero-sum situation. Well, especially in sports, right? Exactly, Um, yes. You see that. Yeah, Uh, and that's something that that, um, I I know many Americans, they they frown and they they show a a face like, how can this be possible? When I tell them that many Scandinavian countries are people from Scandinavia and from the Netherlands, the children going, the kids going into sports, they go there to, to participate, not to win. The, the purpose is not mm-hmm. to win. The purpose is to to do the sport and to enjoy the teamwork, etc. Now, I think in many American um, colleges, universities, that's being said as well. Like you know, it's to, it's important to participate. Nobody believes it. Is that true? Um, I would say like a lot of um, uh, I put it. Uh, a lot of situations, the truth is somewhere in the middle, right? I think that there is some truth to that in terms of you hear backlash from um, uh, like participation certificates or something like that, right? Or yeah. uh, in our youth sports, um, you hear on sports talk radio where they'll say, well, everybody shouldn't get a trophy. Why is everybody getting a trophy? You know, what are we teaching by this? You know, yeah. um, so that I that certainly exists. But I think there's also the flip side of that where you can go too far, right? Like there are certain certainly benefits to participating in sport or competitive activity mm-hmm. um, beyond just the winning and losing, you know? And so, uh, and we have, you know, there's of course instances where parents go overboard in youth oh, yeah. sports, you know, and fights break out or something like that. And then you get the conversation of, hey, we've gone a little bit too far or this group has gone a little bit too far right like let's mm-hmm. pull it back and say uh and look at the real reason that we're have you sports um from a competition standpoint um 
And there are soccer leagues, uh, a lot of our soccer leagues, where they don't keep score up until a certain age. Mm -hmm. um, but a few of my friends um, have kids that are in some of those leagues, and, you know, I ask them about it, and they're like, well, all the parents sit there and keep score, you know? Yeah, like, yeah, they might not <laughs> keep score, like, on the official, officially, yeah. but every parent who's sitting there knows what the score is. Yeah, it's a bit of window oh. dressing in a way. You can't take it, like you said, you can't take it out of the fabric of, of the American being. I guess, mm -hmm. yeah, true. Um, you also talk about rivalry and competitiveness, etc. You um, you run a website, or is it a business as well? Possibly, norivalry.com. Can you tell uh, us a correct. little bit about it's, that? Uh, it's not a business, uh -huh. uh, at least not yet. So okay. <laughs> um, right now, it's just for just for research purposes and right. disseminating our, our findings. Um, so it's no rivalry that's correct but it's a k-n-o-w rivalry yeah. uh and right at the moment we have um data from sports fans uh as you pointed out mostly or pretty much all u.s and canada uh, -huh. uh sports fans so um we have all of the major leagues in the u.s except for the nba we don't we have that data it's just not up on the website yet okay. um so that means we have major league baseball data we have american football nfl data we have our mls our top soccer league that data is up there um and oh the nhl as well and then we have american college football uh data up there as well so the data that's up there uh basically there's a page for every team and it says how those teams fans view rivalry Uh, so who are, who do those teams fans say are their biggest rivals? Uh, and then you can go to the the other team and say is it reciprocated or is it not reciprocated? Right. So this, uh, these are not are not um, score statistics, and this is not what the team itself sa says. Correct. This is the fans, right. uh, fans of the team. So it's not the team, and we did that deliberately, right? So uh -huh. we wanted to know what do the fans think. Yes. Um, for each one of these teams. And so we recruited these respondents off of uh, team message boards uh, where you know, you're gonna find your most highly identified fans and we used identification measures just to, to compare identification and things like that and, uh, what's with the, what's the team. What's the purpose? What, why would I go there? What can I do? Uh, so we get a lot of fans that go there because they just wanna see like, Like on our sports talk radio or on our, in our media, uh, when two teams play each other, they'll use the word rival or they might say, you know, is this the biggest rivalry uh, in, uh, you know, baseball or something like that. And so it's been debated for decades. Right. Right. Um, but no one's really put any sort of quantitative analysis to it. And so um, from a sort of popular standpoint, um, that's the purpose. From a research standpoint, um, what we look at is not so much at a team level, although that's the data that's up there. We look at it at a more aggregate level as to how do fans view the rival fans in terms of we use discrimination measures and we use right. measures of prejudice and we use uh, some schadenfreude measures to see um, you know, what are the negative impacts of potential negative impacts of rivalry? And then what are what rivalry factors are those related to? Right. So on, on one side of rivalry, you have things like geography that will contribute to it. Mm -hmm. um, frequency of play, uh, cultural difference yeah. uh, or cultural extreme cultural similarity will contribute to rivalry as right. well. Yes. Um, and we look and see how do those elements relate to feelings of discrimination toward the rival fans or feelings of prejudice. Um, so that's more, that's our academic uh, purpose 
is to look more at that and see where we'd like to get eventually is two avenues. One being from the business side. So how can businesses take our understanding of rivalry in sports yeah. and use it to drive their own businesses, right? Um, by having a defined out group and emphasizing certain things. So a great example, um, at least here in the U.S., I think it was an international campaign, but Apple um, and PC, or Apple did this campaign where it was uh, a, kind of a cool actor, Justin Long, uh, was supposed to represent Apple, and then you had John Hodgman, this comedian in a suit and everything, and he was supposed to represent basically Microsoft or PC. Yeah, Windows, yeah. Yeah, and so they created this dichotomy between the two um, to show that, hey, this is what we are and this is what the opponent is. And if you're more like Justin Long, the cool guy, then you should have Apple, right? Um, That's a good example of sort of a a rivalry execution uh, in in marketing. Um, But we would like to use some of our research in that angle. And then the other side of it is the social psychology element of, you know, as a former as a former sports marketer myself that worked for teams, um, you want fans that are extremely identified with your team, right? Yeah. That feel like when the team loses, you've lost, or when the team wins, you've actually won, yes. right? And they stick with you through the tough times. But you don't want to go to the line that we call over-identification where you're going to beat up a, you know, an opposing fan in the parking lot or you're going to throw your beer on the other team's fans, right? That's so a that's here. a tough yeah. line. Yeah, I mean, that's a very tough line to walk as an administrator for a team. True. Um, so we're trying to use some of our data um, to see where is that line, you know, what influences that line from a fan social psychology standpoint. Okay, is, are you going to, um, because that this must be, must be a huge chunk of data in total, only American and Canadian, are you going to pull this internationally as well? Yes. Um, actually, my, my research partner, so if you go on the website, you'll see that it's myself and um, David Tyler, who's a professor at Western Carolina University. He's actually, as we speak, in Germany right now, um, working with a couple of professors there to try and start data collection in Bundesliga uh, in Germany uh, on rivalry. And then we're also working in India to try and collect some cricket uh, data and hopefully we'll be able to collect. I'd like to collect some EPL and some Australian rules football right. uh, data as well. Um, and we've had a lot of people, such as yourself, from outside of the U.S. that will visit our website and then will contact us and say, "When are you going to release the EPL data?" You right. know, because exactly. I really want to see it. Um, yeah. And even some media members have contacted us about it, and we say, "Well, we don't. You know, it's probably going to be a year or two until we have the data and it's cleaned and analyzed and up on the site." But but we're we're hoping to get there. It's very it's, it's it's almost a Google operation. It sounds like I mean, think about it, you can um, if you pull this world worldwide only soccer wise, but look at all the 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 um, Olympic disciplines for instance. If you can get that kind of stuff in there, that's that's like Google Earth on sports, I guess to some extent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. potentially. I mean, it's kind of a grand plan. It's probably going to take decades to get you know everything and uh but but it's fun and, and i get a lot of my students involved with it too in terms of understanding from a learning outcome how to build surveys how to collect data how to clean the data analyze the data you know how to pull out results um that are meaningful and statistically significant and, and that sort of thing so so um so we kind of use it as a learning opportunity for the students as well and it's something that they get excited about right because exactly. a lot of Yes, it's, it's an engaging subject in and by itself, but you do, you do in a way, you do boring research in terms of, of filtering and discriminating and stuff like that. And, and, and but the subject is nice, so that that right. is, that's a that's a nice good side of side effect, I guess. 
Um, Joe, I'm looking at the time here. I have um, actually I have three more questions for you, and one I, I wanted to ask in the beginning. It said in your in your LinkedIn profile, it says your specialities are sports sponsors are, are sports sponsorship, rivalry, Formula One racing, which it, which we talked about, and green shoes. <laughs> what is that? I've got my. If you're, if you're you watching on Skype, I got oh, my green shoes. He's got his on. green shoes on. Amazing. Right here. Um, what is yes. that? I, uh, so it's kind of a fun thing. It doesn't really have anything to do with my research, but on campus, I'm known as Dr. Green Shoes All because right. uh, I think it was four years ago, three or four years ago, um, the, our social work department, which is not, I'm in the College of Business. They're in a completely different college, but um but they started a food pantry on our campus for students that, you know, had food insecurity. We're not sure, you know, where they were going to get their grocery money or, or what they were going to do. And obviously you can imagine when you're hungry, it's pretty hard to learn. Um, and so uh, I thought it was such a great um, uh, initiative on campus that I said, hey, I'm going to wear green shoes for the entire semester and I'm going to donate. I'm going to call it green for groceries. I'm going to donate a food item to the food pantry for every class I teach in green shoes. Um, and then obviously when I have green shoes, people ask me, you know, students ask me like, what's with the green shoes, you know, and yeah. it gives me a chance to say, yeah. hey, it's green for groceries. There's a food pantry on campus. You know, you should check it out or you should tell your friends who might need to check it out. Yeah. Um, so the and then at the end of the semester, my students said, are you going to stop wearing green shoes? You know, everybody kind of knows you by your yeah. green shoes now. And I'm like, well. I have three or four pairs of green shoes. I might as well keep doing it. So it's now a good it's marketing. Been, it's been marketing like four game. years. Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. I'm gonna keep going. Really nice. And we did not rehearse this. You were you were wearing these green shoes already by yourself. I, yes. You did not know. I'm on campus. I'm on campus. Anytime I'm on campus, uh, I'm wearing green shoes. If you okay. see me in the city of Cincinnati, I may or may not be wearing green shoes. But if you see me on campus. Okay. If there's a, a one um, European Academy marketing whatever summit going on in the, the city where I am, I'm going to look at the ground <laughs> and see if I can actually. There you go. I do wear them at conferences most of the time. Okay, you know, excellent. great. As idea. you can imagine, it's a it gets a little tricky at a formal situation with a suit and tie yeah. to find green shoes but, but it's a great story anyways yeah um, all right the, uh, the uh the the one but last formal questions can you sure. give us three tips to become more culturally competent please yes um i think you know thinking about my own uh life you know as i as you asked me at the beginning a great question to open and being in an area that was I would say you know not culturally diverse the way that i feel like i became a lot more cultural culturally competent uh -huh. was number one reading is just reading about other cultures you know being intellectually curious you know um, and uh, I think that in in this day and age obviously you can access content from all around the globe uh, so I think reading is a big key and, and watching uh, documentaries I'm a big documentary fan oh, yeah. um, and so I will watch quite a few documentaries. That's what I do when my kids go to bed. Um, we, my wife and I watch a lot of documentaries. Uh, travel, of course, that's a pretty obvious one. Um, but uh, that's a little bit more cost prohibitive for some people perhaps sometimes. But it's getting cheaper and cheaper. True. Um, so I think that travel is certainly one. And then um, the third one along the lines of just reading, which doesn't cost much at all, right, in terms of the library, using uh -huh. your local library, um, is just meeting people that are in your own community that are a lot different from yourself, um, that have either traveled from somewhere else or 
uh, just have a different life experience. They don't have to be from anywhere else, but um, if they have a different um, life experience than you might have, uh, I always find it fascinating to, to talk to people about the first question that you asked, you know, what's your story? Where did you grow up? And, you know, what was your family like or your or your situation uh, that you came from? So I think that 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 intellectual curiosity or that cultural curiosity, uh, you can you can grow in that without spending a lot of money, you know, even if you can't afford to travel or you're not able to travel physically. um, There are other ways. Good. Good stuff. Good points. Um, I like watching documentaries as well. And I get to travel, which I like to do as well. Yes, yes. That's one thing I love about my job. Yes, it's like yeah, that's true. It's travel the, quite a bit. They got the travel bug then. All right, Joe. Um, last question. How can people get in touch with you if they want to? Yes. Um, if you go on our website, norivalry.com, there's an about section um, that has contact information for Twitter. My Twitter is Joe B as in boy, Cobbs, C-O-B-B-S. Um, my LinkedIn link is also on uh, the about section uh, of the website and perhaps my email uh, might be on there as well. Uh, or you can look me up on Northern Kentucky University's site um, where my email is as well. So. Um, okay. that's, that's probably the two best ways great okay if you want to look that up again you can go to culturematters.com click on a podcast tab and then you will find all the podcasts that have been recorded Joe Cops Dr. Green Shoes right? <laughs> that's right <laughs> fantastic alright thanks so, so much for your time and uh, elaborating on sports rivalry uh, in, within an international context um, I'm pretty sure we'll bump into each other in the future. Thanks again. I hope so. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Joe, for being on the show. It's been great talking to you and sharing your insight with all of us. All right. This is the end of episode number 87 the Culture Matters podcast. If you want to see what Dr. Green Shoes look like and actually what his green shoes look like, you can go to culturematters.com slash YouTube where you can find the video of the podcast recording online as well. And while you're at your computer, why don't you go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. I know it's a bit of work, slightly a bit of work, but it really helps in promoting this podcast so more people can listen to this and take advantage of this. All right, thank you so much for that. Um, What else is there to say? Uh, There's a Culture Matters app out there in the iTunes store. It's available for uh, iTunes and Android, of course, for both platforms. And if you know a good guest, that would make a good guest for this podcast. You can always drop me a line at chris.smith at culturematters.com. All right. This episode was produced by Janice Sheila. The music was by Ben Sound. And remember, Culture Matters. I'll be back in two weeks' time. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode. Culture Matters, making you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences. Your host, Chris Smith, has a plan. A plan for people who are looking for a solution. 